Welcome to episode 68 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast featuring conversations in Canadian theatre with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. If you want to drop Stageworthy a line, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll consider leaving a comment or rating on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Comments really help people find the show. My guest is Rob Kempson. Rob is a theater artist and educator. His play Trigonometry opens March 16th and runs until March 25th at Toronto's Factory Theater. about trigonometry of the play. I mean, yeah. so I'm one of those people who, like, math is one of those things that I avoid. So yeah. trigonometry of the play, um, how much of it has to do with math? And, uh, uh, like, tell me, about, tell me about that show. Yeah, it's... I, uh, I don't like math either, so <laughs> let's start there. Um, I, 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 um, I, I didn't... I did okay in math in high school, so it wasn't an issue of, like, having sort of a a strong aversion to it forever. I just Mm -hmm. never liked it. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I started writing the play, I was really inspired by um, Sarah Rule's book, 100 Essays I Don't Have Time to Write. Mm -hmm. And in there, she talks a lot about play structure in several of the essays. And in one of them, she uh, in particular talks about the structure... Uh, of the arc and why we conceive of the arc as the shape that is ideal for plays, Mm. which I thought was a really interesting thought just because it's not something that had ever crossed my mind. Um, Certainly I've worked in different structures before, but thinking about the association of the given shape was Mm. a new idea for me. And just sort of offhandedly, she questions, you know, what would happen if a play was a triangle play or a square play? And I wondered what if a play was a triangle play? Um, and so then I started thinking about what that would mean structurally. And uh, it's actually from there that I, I moved into the play being called Trigonometry mm-hmm. and that the um, the one of the characters is a, is a math teacher um, teaching Trigonometry. And, and so it was, in fact, um, out of the structure of the play, um, this idea of this triangle, that I started to explore how deep I could uh, run those roots. And then it ended up turning into part of the story mm-hmm. too. <clears throat> Did you figure out what a triangle play looks like? I mean, I hope so. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I have or not. Uh, the, for me, um, if you know trigonometry and you're like particularly interested in sort of the, the math aspect of the play, the play is designed around the three trigonometric functions, which okay. are sine, cosine, and tangent. Um, and each of those functions basically... Uh, allows you to calculate different things uh, based on um, the relationship between angles and length of sides on a right angle triangle Mm -hmm. and eventually any triangle, but primarily a right angle triangle. Um, And so, uh, and so in writing the play, um, I have each scene, um, explores one of those functions. So the mm. first scene is sine, and that's opposite over hypotenuse, is how you would calculate that. 
and the second scene is cosine, and uh, that's adjacent over hypotenuse, which is how that's calculated. And then the third scene is um, tan, and that error tangent, and that is um, uh, opposite over adjacent. Mm-hmm. And that's all in the calculation of a, of a given angle sure. relationship. But um, but in the play, I've sort of uh, extrapolated on that idea, assigned each of the three characters to a part of the triangle. Um, and then played with the idea that one character starts in a given power uh, or status sort of structure over another character based on these trigonometric okay. functions. Okay. And um, so if you're like a real math nerd and that's interesting to you, then you can figure that out. Right. Or a theater nerd who like pretends to be a math nerd for a minute like I am. Yeah. Um, but there's only one actual equation in the play. Mm. So I think it's a triangle play in the sense that I've tried really hard to use that structure to my advantage mm-hmm. and not push against it too much. Um, does the play also have an arc? Yeah. I mean, I hope so. Like, yeah. I hope that you walk out of it, uh, feeling like the characters have gone on a journey. Right. Um, but I do think that structurally the play works in these sort of three separate sections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, <clears throat> did you, was there something in particular that, that, uh, you, were inspired by aside from the triangle or the trigonometry for this? Yeah, this is the third play in my series, The Graduation Plays. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, each of the graduation plays are, are plays that examine the sort of complexity of relationships between teachers and students in okay. a high school environment. Uh, and each of the plays really are about um, a time when a student disrupts a power structure. So mm-hmm. in a school, we assume that the power is... Uh, concurrent i guess or coincident with um the authority so the mm-hmm. principal is at the top followed by the vice principal followed by right. department heads etc all the, and students are at the bottom um and i am really interested in these three works uh about or I- interested in the way that students can take back power and mm. uh, throw off that traditional structure um so uh, I liken this play to the other two. They're they're all thematically related. You don't have to have seen any of them to understand the next right. one because they don't have uh, characters who cross all three <clears throat> right. plays or anything. But um, they're all kind of about the same thing. They're about mm-hmm. a student disrupting a power structure in a high school. Um, and the way that I enter into them is from a different perspective. So okay. the first play, Shannon 1040, which we did at Video Fag in 2015, um, is arguably primarily a student perspective into that problem. Um, Mockingbird, which I did at the Next Stage Festival in 2016, uh, is a teacher perspective into that problem, mm-hmm. and trigonometry, I think, is a parent perspective. Okay. Um, and so the inspiration for all of them come from the fact that I work a lot in schools, um, both as a guest artist and as a, as a supply teacher. Mm-hmm. And I have my bachelor bed, and uh, teaching is a really important part of my artistic practice. And- yeah. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next my next question is what it was that that draws you into the idea of students disrupting that structure. Yeah, have you seen that happen? Oh my gosh, it happened to me yesterday. Actually. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was uh, I was in a school that shall remain nameless, teaching for a teacher who I I have great respect for and who's a good friend of mine, and uh, and a student hijacked my class. And uh, I mean, it's not the first time that that's ever happened, but. A student hijacking the class, meaning that like they know 
how to, they know enough about the system that they know how to disrupt it from within it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, and one of the things that I have found, and this didn't happen yesterday, but one of the things that I've found or seen a lot is that a lot of that ends up coming from students' expression of sexuality in some capacity. Mm-hmm. So um, exerting themselves uh, as sexual beings because teachers don't have any kind of a defense against that. Right. Um, because they can't talk about it in schools because the sex ed curriculum is quite rigid and not, in fact, very progressive. Right. Uh, although this play deals with sort of the new sex ed curriculum that was first introduced in 2015 mm-hmm. and then uh, was protested and then protested again. Anyways, uh, is now in place, sort of. Um, but uh, but that disabling of a teacher's sort of all of the things that they have mm-hmm. um, in their toolkit Right. It's something that's really interesting to me. It's also terrifying when it happens as a teacher, like that you, you can't do anything. Um, so yesterday, like a student hijacked <clears throat> my class um, just by being a jerk and mm-hmm. sort of getting crazy. And then um, another student filmed my interaction with that student. And that filming of it is in fact the plot point of Shannon 1040, which is the first play okay, in wow, the series. Wow. <laughs> series. Um, but, and, and I'm certainly not embarrassed by anything that happened in that interaction. I wouldn't be worried about anyone seeing that mm-hmm. video, but uh, because students have cell phones and they have access to technology right. and it, all of that stuff, um, social media and et cetera, starts to blur the lines. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you know, I have students try to add me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter all the time. Of course. Um, and, uh, and you really have to, there's no specific rules about how that works. And no. I know lots of teachers who have their students on Facebook and I know lots of teachers who don't even have Facebook and right. I know everything in between. So the blurring of those lines is actually, I think a really good, um, indicator of the blurring of lines that happen in person too. Yeah. You know, that, that teaching is ultimately a human thing. It's a human art form. It's mm. imperfect. Um, and I think that those environments are rich for really complex confrontations and interactions. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, it's a right place to write a play. Yeah. About. And just the, just the idea that whatever you do in that class, there's somebody who has a phone and could, could film it. Yeah, and there's like a permanent record of that. Well, and that you have a phone in that class <clears throat> mm-hmm. too, right? Like, sort of, you extrapolate on it and think about all of the ways in which technology in the classroom can affect the right. classroom. Yeah. So, you know, um, in, in the play, um, certainly the use of phones. There's two two sort of big pieces of plot come from phones, mm. um, and that's a you know a reflection on our on our current world, but it's also a reflection on the things that I think are dangerous and, um, and terrifying Mm. about, uh, about working in schools as as an educator. Interesting thing. Uh, I remember, I was just thinking about, uh, seeing in, uh, some kind of playwriting or script writing book about how using a phone was a cheat. And this of course was an old book. Yeah, Yeah. Like using, having somebody call another person, that's a cheat. That's mm-hmm. a shortcut. Don't use that. But now, in a realistic situation, we would not even call. We would text. Yeah. And how do we? How does one do I, that? You know on what? Stage? I tend to agree with that playwriting book that using a phone is a cheat, just mm-hmm. like using a gun is a cheat. Yeah. And using a gun is a terrible cheat. But using a phone is a cheat in the sense that if you use a phone to reveal information that you could reveal in a different, better mm-hmm. written way, then it's a cheat. Yeah. But if you use the phone as the action Mm. of the scene, 
then it's not a cheated. I mm. think if the response to what's happening on the phone creates more action, mm-hmm. then I don't think it's a cheat. Maybe it is. I don't know. But in in this play, um, it, all of the phone use it, uh, isn't about actually using a phone as a phone. It's mm. about texting or okay. other sort of media and stuff that can happen on a phone. Right. Um, and uh, and so, in particular, in uh, in one of the scenes. Every time a character receives a text message, the temper of the scene changes because, mm-hmm. uh, or temper, that's not what I'm looking for. Different word. Timbre, tone, something mm-hmm. of the scene changes. And the, the, the idea is that the phone is instigating some of the conversation that's happening. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's interesting because it's between two adults. Mm-hmm. Um, one who sort of uses a phone a lot and one who doesn't. Right. Um, and that becomes a source of conflict. It's not the main source of conflict. I think when it, when phones on stage become a problem now are when people are trying to do things like have Skype conversations on stage. Right. Or have a character on their phone uh, just scrolling because they don't know what else to do. Yes. Yeah. And I think more broadly, I mean, if we really consider how that then plays to the use of any object on stage. Mm-hmm. If you're using any object to fill time rather than to create an action, yeah. then it's a cheat. Yes. Yeah. Arguably. Mm-hmm. A phone just has the unique capacity to actually connect you with other humans. Yeah. But the same thing is true. Like if you, you know, look at a computer on stage or you, you know, project a character in on Skype on stage, those are, it, uh, are not action driven things. Yeah. Um, necessarily. I mean, I guess the line is, Variable, but it's so hard to it's hard because I know the impulse to try to be like this is what people would do now. Yeah, but does that serve the story? And is it is it really well, the best way to do it? Yeah, I mean, I guess the example is in Mockingbird, mm-hmm. my last show. Uh, there are no phones on stage, hmm. and in fact, we had a conversation during one of the rehearsals where uh, it takes place in a contemporary staff room. Um, it talks about quite contemporary <laughs> things. Mm-hmm. There are eleven people in the show. Uh, and one of the actors was like, well, I think my character would probably be like, you know, bored and scrolling through an iPad in this moment because it's a staff room. Uh, but we have no phones in this show. It Does this world have phones? Mm. And I said, yeah, it totally does. These are just English teachers. They read books. Like they don't need to, <laughs> you know, uh, they don't have any, they don't, well, they mm. don't, they don't need to scroll through their phones all the time. Um but it very much takes place in this world. But mm-hmm. I also think that from a writing perspective in that play, I'm looking at a room where I have, you know, the potential to have 11 people in that room. Yeah. I don't need a phone to drive any of the action. No. I have 11 people. Yeah. Whereas this play only has three people. Mm-hmm. And so if I can use some offstage characters vis-a-vis these phones, mm-hmm. then it expands the world and sort of creates... Um, a sense of what's happening outside of the world of the play. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the most important things about um, this series for me is that feeling that the school is omnipresent, right? Like Mm. that you understand that this one room or this one interaction that you're seeing is part of a much bigger ecosystem that these characters are living in. Yeah. Um, I'm so curious about uh, the... You, the teaching aspect of, of your life. Yeah. Um, but I want to come back to that. Yeah. Because sure. First I want to, I want to know about, um, why you chose the theater as oh, something that you do. Like, was there, wow. 
some desire from when you were young that made you want to be an actor? How did you become an actor, playwright, director, producer of your work? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm mostly not an actor any, anymore. I've certainly acted enough times, but it's not... I don't pursue acting as my profession, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I think the reason why I'm in theater right now as a playwright and director primarily is because... Um, when I go to see a show and when I want to make a show, all of the considerations that I make or think about are all the big picture considerations. So I can certainly talk about someone's performance uh, separate from the show, but I'm actually more interested in what does the overall vision of the show look like? Mm-hmm. What does the um, what is the writing doing? How is right. that driving? Um, I mean, I such a big question. God. <laughs> Uh, I started working in... No. Mm, I fell in love with theater when I saw The Phantom of the Opera when I was seven. Mm -hmm. Like, I think everyone in my age bracket bracket Mm -hmm. did. Um, And uh, and I fell in love with it because, you know, there were lots of interesting technical things happening and, you know, magic Mm -hmm. on stage. But I also fell in love with it because I remember being seven and and being emotionally moved Mm -hmm. and crying Mm -hmm. And not understanding why I was crying because I wasn't sad. Right. Yes. And realizing that that kind of power existed. Hmm. That I that something could be made to make me have an emotional response. But that it's an emotional response that's false. Because mm-hmm. it's not my own right. emotions. Right. Um, and I think I was like pretty wowed by that. Mm-hmm. And, and I also didn't come from a theater family. So certainly no one in my family knows anything about theater or... Uh, plays music or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I don't know, I came out of the womb wanting to like put on shows for people and I wanted to learn piano. I think I'm the only kid ever who like asked my mother to sign me up for piano lessons <laughs> and she said no. Because um, we didn't have a piano. Right. And she was like, well, that's silly. How do you, like, you don't even know that you want this. And I'm sure I asked for, you know, seven different things a week. So, um, so eventually I think it, it just uh, became clear that the way that I could best communicate um, was through the arts in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, it became more difficult in high school because I spent a lot of time doing theater and music, but uh, I was very good in, in math and science mm-hmm. and those things. So people thought that I should do that. But I think that that's actually just the sign of like a, a type A personality, right. like I'm a, a work hard kind of person. Um, and, uh, and a perfectionist, mm. which is like not necessarily a good thing to have in theater, <laughs> either of those things. Um, but uh, but then when I when I went to I went to Queens uh, and and did concurrent education. And when I first left high school, all I wanted to do was become a high school drama teacher. Mm. And so I went into Con Ed so that I could do that. And um, my intention was to have drama as a third teachable and actually take music and geography because mm. that was much more important. And <laughs> thankfully at Queens, uh, not thankfully, but uh, thankfully for me, you can't take a science, physical geography with an art mm. as a double major. Okay. Uh, so I ended up taking drama instead as my, and then took geography as my third teachable. Um, and then like by third or fourth year I had done enough shows that I thought I, I would like to do this instead of mm. just teaching this. I would like to actually do this. So, I, I, like, I feel like a bit of a late bloomer in that way. Like, I certainly wasn't a kid who... I, my school didn't participate in the Sears Festival. Right. I never wrote a play in high school. 
Um, I never wrote a play in elementary school. Mm. I certainly put on like shows for my family, but I, I, um, it wasn't really until really even the end of my undergrad that I started conceiving of myself primarily as a writer Mm. and, um, and yeah. and, And I guess sort of meandered my way through from there. Did you, did you become a drama teacher or did you concentrate more on the, on doing the theater? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I have been an employee of the Toronto District School Board for the last like decade, mm. um, but always as an occasional teacher. So right. I've only ever supply taught, um, and I like supply teaching. It's quite fun. There's mm. a supply teacher in this show, um, and uh, there wasn't one in the previous two incarnations, and I thought that that was missing, so I'm mm. sure that one was a supply teacher in this show. Uh, I have been offered some other like teaching contracts. Teaching mm. contracts seem to... Uh, be a little bit easier for me to access than some mm-hmm. other contracts. So I've, I've not taken any full-time teaching contracts. Mm. Um, but I've, I've certainly taught a lot. Right. Um, and then I worked, uh, in arts education a lot administratively as well. So I was, I've worked at young people's theater for years in various right. different capacities. Um, and they're an amazing organization where education is really at the heart of the art that they make. Um, I was the education manager at Canadian Stage for three years, um, and through my role as the associate artistic producer at Theatre Passmore, um, a lot of my role was also education focused. Mm. It was sort of a split education and then artistic sort of stuff. Right. So I did a lot of that work. Um, I was a founding board member for Paoni, which is the Professional Arts Organizations Network for Education. Nice. Um, and uh, and now that I work at the Thousand Islands Playhouse uh, as the associate artistic director, I I direct the kids show that tours to all sorts of communities across Eastern Ontario. And I really love that, that part of my job. So, um, I, I often say that, you know, teaching for a lot of people can, can become a Joe job. And certainly every day of supply teaching is not the most like personally fulfilling day that I've ever had, but teaching, uh, will always be a part of my artistic practice. Right. So I teach a lot of high school students. I teach a lot of teachers as a guest artist. So Mm -hmm. I do a lot of guest artist work where the teacher is in the room. Right. I do a lot of guest artist work in professional development days for teachers, that kind of stuff. Um, And I learn from teaching about my own artistic practice. Mm -hmm. Um, My artistic practice is made better as a result of my teaching Mm -hmm. practice and vice versa. Mm -hmm. The more art I make, the better teacher I am. The more teaching I do, the better artist I am. Interesting. Um, and for me, those things must be parallel and will will always be parallel. Mm. Uh, sometimes when the the weight is not equally distributed between the two uh, and it more leans in the education side, um, I find myself uh, less inspired to sort of uh, be inspired, mm. I guess, by the work that I'm doing educationally. Yeah. But um, I love teaching. I really do. And I've, I've worked a lot in community arts too. So I, I've taught, you know, between ages of five and 85. Nice. Um, yeah. And I, I really like working with people of all stripes. Cool. When you were um, going through the Queens program and you decided you started writing, do you remember why you started writing? Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, no, it's not a good reason. Um, I, I, I started writing because we had to do a director's project for my directing course. And uh, I really couldn't find a play that I liked. Mm. 
because they had to be 20 minutes, like they were short. Right. And the idea of producing or directing rather only a scene seemed dumb. I could find lots of plays that I liked, but I couldn't Mm. find any 20 minute plays that I liked. And I didn't want to just do scenes. So I wrote a play so that I could direct that, I guess. (laughs) Um, And then, uh, and then I got a bit hooked on that. So then I did an undergrad thesis in, in my final year where I wrote a musical. Uh, It's a really excellent academic exercise and a really terrible musical as a result (laughs) um, that I wrote with a a friend of mine. And, um, and then when I first moved to Toronto, I, I was writing a musical, like mm. a, a new musical that I knew I was writing. And, and so then that kind of just seemed like that was the thing I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've really come to understand uh, that every writer's process is really, really different. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think we do really well as a community is shame people for not having the same process as someone else. <laughs> yeah. And we love to talk about like, you know, the writers who get up at six in the morning and make themselves a pot of tea and then Mm -hmm. sit down at their desk and write for eight hours straight, taking a break only for lunch. And then you'll be the next null coward or whatever. Um, and that's never been my process because I am, I am fed by the world that I live in artistically. And, um, so for me teaching, I, I need to know something that's not just making plays in yeah. order to make good plays. Yeah. So teaching is a big part of that for me. It's interesting about the, the shaming of, uh, 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 uh of practice. Um, you know, people having different practice. I know yeah. for me, when I'm writing every time I sit down to write it, I'm working in a different way. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I've never been one who can like sit down and write for eight hours. I did it once. I was a basket case for yeah. the rest of the week. <laughs> And I was well, reading uh, Stephen King's book uh, on writing about how, you know, Stephen King who writes like, yeah. you must write like all the time, but apparently he only writes a thousand words a day. Yeah. And then he puts it away and he goes and does something else. Yeah. You know? I, I think it, I mean, it depends. I, I did the Stratford Playwrights Retreat a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, which is such a great gift. And uh, and Bob White, who runs that program and new play development at Stratford in general, is a, a genius um, and a really kind, supportive, incredible man and an incredible dramaturg and, and just a, a really, he knows what he's doing for writers. And the joy of that program is that you are not expected to hand any specific thing in. You mm. are also not given like actors or anything. You're just given space. They put you up in a place. Mm. They give you like a living wage so that you don't have to worry about losing a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. They pay for your way there. <clears throat> they pay for your way back. And they say you can go and see the shows if you want or mm. you cannot if you want. And you can come to dinner sometimes if you want, or you can not if you want. Hmm. And that kind of flexibility. Yeah. Um, those days I wrote for eight hours, some of them, you know, because <laughs> I, I had, that was, that worked. But, but acknowledgement of different processes, I yeah. think is a really important part of it. And so for me, you know, uh, so would I like to be less busy sometimes, like, and make less choices based on needing money? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Of yeah. course I would, as would everyone in any job, I think. But I think my writing um, is better as a result of my other interests. Mm-hmm. And uh, and certainly, like, you know, I've taught math yeah. in high school. And I've taught chemistry and girls' phys ed and mm-hmm. law and all sorts of other weird things that I shouldn't be teaching. <laughs> and uh, and those experiences are things that have inspired me to create mm. art out of it. Yeah. When did you start producing on your own? 
Ah, well, that's interesting because I I really resisted the idea of self-producing when I first started working and I I produced um, a musical when I first moved to Toronto at the Fringe and it went like relatively well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I started getting hired to produce things like I that was part of my jobs that I had. Yeah. And so I really didn't want to produce for myself because I knew I couldn't pay myself. So I thought, well, I'll do this for money and then write for, for free. Right. And um, it took me six years to get the way back to Thursday produced at Theatre Pass Marais, um, which I was very grateful for that opportunity and to be in their season and all of that sort of stuff. And then uh, I started, I had Mockingbird um, partially written and Shannon partially written and Shannon 1040 is a two-hander so like that could exist in some many capacities but uh, Mockingbird ultimately uh, was an 11-person play yeah so prior to that I mean I, I've done a bunch of other projects that I've produced myself like I, I but again they were part of my job so I did some installation projects that I produced right. myself um, but I was paid by Opera Atelier or Casaloma or whoever right. Um so it was always like part of the work. So sometimes it was producing and creating, mm-hmm. but you know, even I did, uh, I produced uh, a show in hatch one year at Harbor front center and, but it was also my show. So, right. you know, and, and there's a bit of a stipend there so that you don't, you know, starve. Um, but when it came to thinking about mockingbird, you know, I've written an 11 person play. I'm like a early thirties writer. Mm-hmm. No one is going to ever produce my, 11 person play yeah. certainly not in this country but probably no one anywhere uh so i if i wanted to see the light of day i'm gonna have to produce it mm-hmm. and i and then i started thinking about how shannon 1040 was thematically so similar and those mm-hmm. plays seemed linked to me and so then i i don't know i guess i just thought that we should do it we should i should make that happen mm. so for all three uh plays in this series i've worked with producers who are incredible incredible uh lisa lee who's producing this is a brilliant brilliant mm-hmm. amazing human being um and liz sheffield is uh produced shannon 1040 and she is also a brilliant amazing human being um there are so many great people working in arts communities Mm -hmm. in administrative capacities and in artistic capacities and everything in between. And, um, and so my, my sort of job as the producer is to kind of, uh, take on anything that they don't want to take on and tell them that I'm spending my money. And if it goes (laughs) south, it's okay. And it's, you know, so, uh, I think it became just a a situation where like, I knew I had this play that no one was going to ever produce for Mm -hmm. me and I didn't want to wait another six years to find someone to produce the next one or right. to, you know, keep applying to different festivals or whatever. So I just started, you know, figuring it out. I have to say it's, it's interesting that you sort of allowed yourself to write an 11 person play, because I think a lot of playwrights with knowing that in our producing environment, yeah. I just want to make sure it's on. Is it on? Oh yeah. my gosh. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just saw nothing. Moving no, no, no. And I was yeah, like, I just, Oh my God. I really, yeah, no, no, it's sorry. good. <clears throat> Now I'm making you edit. No, no, it's all good. Um, in terms, like the uh, produce, like creating a play that has 11 people in it. Yeah. There's a lot of playwrights who would just be like, well, nobody's going to produce this, so I should cut down the number of, of characters. Yeah. I think it's brave of you to, to, to do that. Yeah, some but, say brave, some say stupid. Okay. Right? Like yes. that's. <laughs> there is, yes, but I mean, was there something that, that 
like did you decide that it could only exist with this with this size of, well, of cast? Well, I I uh, I like to set myself challenges when mm. I write most of the time. So, uh my musical The Way Back to Thursday is a two-person show in which uh, it, it mimics almost exactly uh, the structure of an 18th century song cycle uh, because that seemed like something I should try to figure out how to mm-hmm. do. Like, uh, it, it actually created a, a bunch of limitations mm-hmm. and uh, and I work really well with boundaries and limits. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a big part of it is that I had never written anything with more than five people. Mm-hmm. And I just, I guess I thought like, okay, well, you should learn how to do that if you would like to consider yourself a playwright. Yeah. Um, the joy of writing for 11 people is enormous mm-hmm. um, because it's hard, but also then you have 11 different perspectives to play with. Right. And that is so fun uh, to, to have those 11 different perspectives weigh in on something. Um so I guess I, I started writing it actually before I went to the Stratford retreat and then I finished it while I was there and I sort of took it to Bob and I was like, all I need you to tell me is whether or not I should keep writing this play. And he's like, well, no one's going to produce it. And I said, no, no, I know. But like, is it worth me producing it? Like, is it worth me produce? Is it worth it for me to keep writing this play so that I can produce it? Right. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. I like this play a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, great. Well, then I guess I'll do that. Why not? It's not like, you know, producing an 11-person play versus producing a two-person play is a little bit different because mm-hmm. there's more people involved, yeah. but it the the action of producing the play is the same. Right. Um, it's just more expensive. And then we did it in a festival, so then it was less expensive. Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's working out those nuts and bolts has uh, is fun. That's part of the artistic job, I mm-hmm. think, is figuring that out. Um, and then, you know, there are people who I'm sure, uh, you know, who, who, well, I have spoken to people who said, well, can you write it with less than 10? Cause then mm. someone could actually consider producing it. And I said, no, like that's the play. I wrote an 11 person mm. play. I'll write a nine person play someday, yeah. but this is my 11 person play. <laughs> when you were writing, <clears throat> when you were writing the play, were there points where you were worried that, that there were characters that weren't like... That were being lost. Totally. Oh my gosh. All the time. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I ended up like doing uh, several sort of readings to myself where I, I had a, a, like a square of paper on my desk and then a bunch of pennies and I would put, cause it all happens in one room. Right. So I would put the penny in when the character was entered and then take them out when they exited. Cause otherwise I would forget to have them you exit they were there. or forget to have them enter or, right. and just write them. But, and so that, you know, that, that sort of technical stuff is fun to figure right. out um, and figure out where they could all go and what all their exits are and why right. they're exiting and all of that sort of business. But, uh, I don't like, I, I, uh, I just figured it out, I guess. Mm. I Like, yeah, you lose track of, of people all the time, but I think there were... I knew enough about the play and I knew enough about the characters in the play mm. that there were... I would say in that play there are like four people who... Um, who, do, who have a specific amount of time on stage and it is not the whole play. Right. And there's a reason why they are there and they must be in the play but they are only on stage for a specific amount of time. Right. So, um, 
that makes it a bit easier because mm-hmm. then I'll, you know, then it's really a seven person play with right. four sort of with ancillary four, yeah. characters. Mm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> to get back to uh, trigonometry, uh-huh. um, you were you just when I came in, you were saying that you had rehearsed in January, yeah, um, and then had some time where you could be a producer, yeah, and now you're back into rehearsal, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because <clears throat> you open this play like we open next, next Thursday, week, next Thursday, yeah, on March sixteenth. March 16th to the 25th. Buy tickets now. Where? Factory Theater. Factory in the theater. studio. Oh, in the studio, okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, I mean, it's a regular run. We, run. Nice. we open on a Thursday, we close the following Saturday, etc. Yeah. yeah. Tickets are $15 for arts workers or $20 nice. for everyone else. And uh, they are available at factorytheater.ca or by calling the Factory Theater box office, which is 416-504-9971. Wow. Wow. Well, I've written it out a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we also have more information. We have a website that we set up for the play. That's uh, mm. trigonometrytheplay.com. Right. So people can check out that too. Um, that, that rehearsal process that you had rehearsing in January and then some time off, yeah. was that by design or was that just the way that schedules were? No, out? it was actually, it was totally just actor schedules. Mm. So um, I certainly wrote the play with Rose Napoli in mind for one character. Mm-hmm. She's a good friend of mine and, and a brilliant actor. And so I wanted uh, her to play this role. And she's currently in a show in Barrie that I'm going to see uh, tomorrow that I'm very excited uh, with Talk is Free called Offline. Mm-hmm. And it's their collective show uh, that Rose ended up becoming sort of the, the one of two sort of head writers on. And um, because of her rehearsal process for that we could rehearse before she left and then we could open after she comes back, mm-hmm. which is pretty much what we're doing. But, but it, as it's turned out, uh, Andy Tridhard, who's also in that collective, um, is our sound designer for trigonometry and right. our stage manager for trigonometry is the apprentice stage manager on that show. So <laughs> well, I have three of them. Out. Yeah. Right. I, I, um, I will say this, this idea of rehearsing though, you know, a month out from your show, uh, for two weeks and then taking a month off is um, from rehearsals really useful as a producer because you also have you know your promotional shots mm-hmm. and your rehearsal shots and yeah. material but also really useful because as I saw today so much of what we did in that rehearsal has really settled mm. people mm. really the character isn't in its formation stages the character is formed right. so now the brush up is just really a memorization brush up do you remember where you stand when and what the next line is Hmm. um but the intentions are all clear um and the uh the the subtext is all clear and you know all that table table work stuff Hmm. has a lot more time to settle in um so uh, it certainly wasn't a, a by design process, yeah. but it might be one that I design in the future because it, it's ended up working. I mean, knock on wood, yeah. it's ended up working really <laughs> well so far. So we hope it continues to work well into opening. Have you noticed a, a, a difference in the way that, um, like from that last rehearsal to this brush up, did mm-hmm. things settle more like the di- what's the difference in the way that the characters are from that last one to well uh if we had you know the the final rehearsal before uh if we had been going into tech right after that rehearsal i would have been nervous mm. um not because i mean they're all brilliant actors but they're brilliant actors who had been working in a two-week 
rehearsal process mm-hmm. and not even full days in those two weeks, you know? And so they're accessing this material. Uh, it's a 75 minute play, but it's just talking yeah. and it's a, and it's a dense, um, sort of, uh, it's not dense. It, it's, uh, it's complex and it's interweaving. So once right. you figure out the story, um, for each of those characters, mm-hmm. you know, that takes three days in and of itself. Yeah. Just, and so, everything felt like we were just scraping the surface of it. You know, we were, they could do it. They moved in all the right ways. Mm-hmm. They shouted at all the right times and whispered at all the right times and made jokes and all of the stuff that you do. But, um, today what we started to find was really deep settling into an actual character hmm. perspective on all of those things. So you're seeing it come from not just a really skilled actor who can make it look seamless, but actually an actual character on right. stage. And that, um, would have happened in the run for sure had we run after we rehearsed uh, the first time, but it maybe wouldn't have happened by opening night. Right. You know, and uh, <clears throat> and I think that that's one of the dangers that happens in Canadian theater all the time is that because so many of our rehearsal processes are so short, we always get there. The actors always get there, yeah. but they maybe don't get there right away. And um, and it and it you know it, if we are doing things like taking reviews into consideration, etc., which yeah. you know uh, we all know that reviews are a part of an artistic ecology, but maybe not the be all and end all of it. Um, but that can be nerve wracking, knowing yeah. that you know you're arriving at opening night and you're not quite as prepared as you'd like to be. Yeah. Whereas I feel like this kind of process, at least for me, this time and you know talk to the actors, maybe they tell you something totally different, <laughs> but. For me, it's felt it's felt a lot calmer because mm-hmm. we've been able to really sink our teeth into something and then settle in it and then ask even more intelligent questions later on. Mm-hmm. You so um, in terms of not just the performances but the the, the comfort with the material has deepened. Uh, I, I mean, I, I hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, like you know, right now they're all stressed about learning their lines, of course because yeah. there's lots of lines and it's contemporary text, so it's all interruptions and. Cut-offs and all that sort of annoying yeah. stuff. They were telling me today that they wish that it was Shakespeare because then it would be easier to memorize. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, but they, but I, I, I mean, it, comfortability with the material because we've also worked it out. We've mm. like figured it out already. Yeah, yeah. Just a matter of remembering. Just a matter of remembering. Yeah, yeah. which you know is no small, uh, small task. But yeah, <laughs> but they, I think, are up for it. In terms of the so all this 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 uh, m- more than more than a, I guess almost a month of of not rehearsing when you've been doing the production stuff yeah um, do you thrive on that or is that something that you just sort of suffer through not rehearsing no the like producing like the oh. producer's job well yeah I mean again like I'm lucky that I'm working with an actual producer right mm-hmm. Lisa Lee is incredible so I'm really supporting her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and working primarily in the regular director sort mm-hmm. of role, like talking to designers and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I, but I like all of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I like thinking about, you know, uh, what Instagram posts we're putting up this week and how and why and all of that. Mm-hmm. I like thinking about what, you know, the marketing plan and what is coming up mm-hmm. next and when we're all going to change our cover photo on Facebook and, yeah. Um, and talking to the graphic designer about what we want the images for the show to look like. And all of those sorts of um, pieces of it, I think, are artistic processes. Mm-hmm. I think so often, like, artists tend to poo-poo 
um, producing as something you know that's a necessary evil, but right. there's a there, it's an art form in and of itself. Yeah. And um, and again, like working with someone as talented and skilled as Lisa Lee means that it's seamless, and the parts where I support her in that producing work are just like joyful because yeah. I get to work with someone who's a genius. Yeah. Which is great. Which is more uh, a little less stressful than, than trying to figure it all out yourself. Yeah. Also, like I have a rule with students, uh, which is that you know when I adjudicate a festival or something, I tell them that they're not allowed to do more than two jobs on a show. Right. Um, and so if I was writer, director, and producer of this play, that would be too many things. That'd be too many things. Because um, you can't do three things really well. No. Doing no. too well is possible, but hard. Yes. So like I'm willing to make that hard sort of choice. But I'm not willing to make the insane choice, which is doing three. Has it been difficult um, to switch switch hats from from playwright to director? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I um, uh, my intention is not to direct my own work always, mm-hmm. uh, but for these three plays, I have uh, just because. Well, for the most part, if I'm going to uh, if I'm going to spend a bunch of money. Uh, producing plays independently which is exclusively an exercise in spending money and mm-hmm. not making it then I'd like to spend money getting two credits as yeah. both a director <laughs> and a writer yeah. um, which is just the reality of making theatre in Canada like yeah. if I have to buy myself credits um, then I'd like to buy them in both of the worlds that I'd like to be hired in Yeah, um, but it's difficult it's also fun uh, I've sort of created over the past three shows this alter ego named Fritz who is the playwright Rob, and so when we're in the room, there are days when we're doing dramaturgical work. Mm-hmm. But if we have a question about the script um, that we can't solve, or I can't solve as a director, um, that's a question for Fritz, and meaning that I will not look at that until I go home and look at it on mm-hmm. in, in in a writer brain. And I try to keep that really secure um, separation between director Rob and writer Rob because. It, um, well, because I think it makes me better at both of those jobs. So if I write something and I find that that is the, you know, the right cadence or the right pacing or whatever, and then I go to direct it and it doesn't work, the easy choice would be to change it right away. Right, into of course. something that works. Yeah. But actually, the job of a director is to make it work. Mm-hmm. And so I try to approach my own writing in the same way. Because there's a reason I wrote it that way. Maybe yeah. I don't know what that is yet. but yeah. um, And so I try to work it from a directing perspective first. And then if I can't fix it, that's when I leave it for Fritz to take care of right. later on. That's really, really a good idea. Because I found myself in those, like, oh, Well, then it's a now. pit. Yeah, then you just, like, fix everything. Well, then you never, yeah, you never stop. Yeah, like, there are line changes that I'll make in rehearsal for sure. But um, but it's a, it's, a ne- it's a rabbit hole. Like, you'll mm-hmm. just go down forever. Yeah. Yeah. Are you on social media? Yeah. <clears throat> what do you got? Oh, I'm everything. I got got Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I mean, I have a Snapchat, but like, that's not a real. That's not a real thing. No. Um, What do you? What are your uh, your Twitter? uh, Oh yeah, my my handle for all things is uh, underscore or Rob underscore Kempson. So Mm -hmm. just my name with an underscore in between, which is how you would find me on Twitter or Instagram. Um, And because we don't. Uh, Timeshare, which is the company that's producing this, mm-hmm. which is a fake company. It's like an uncompany. Right. Um, we're not like we don't have a Facebook page that you should like or anything right. like that. Um, so you can just you know check out 
my fa- we have a Facebook event for the show, right? Um, all of those sorts of things. And you have you have a website though. I do. I have a personal website. Yeah, it's robkemsing.com. You Amazing. can also I actually I, I don't even think I have any information about trigonometry on there. You actually you don't because I was looking at that today. Fortunately, ah! fortunately you do have a website for trigonometry. I do. We have just trigger yes. trigonometrytheplay.com is the Which trigonometry is website, um, and and that is also a reflection on us sort of as this uncompany for each mm-hmm. new play we make a new website mm. and we just say like this is all the information you need to know about this play right because chances are not that good that you want to know about like the last plays that my fake company produced mm-hmm. um I, I i sometimes think that companies that are driven by a, a single directorial mm-hmm. voice or a single right writing voice mm-hmm. um are not so much companies as actually just like the collected works of that artist. Yeah. And that's really valuable, but I think we have uh, um, a tendency to want to call those companies... Something. Something, yeah. which seems redundant to me. I mean, in dance, they don't do that. No. They just, you know, it's Peggy Baker dance, which is yeah. Peggy Baker's work. And, yeah. uh, and I, I really appreciate that clarity. And, um, and I'll, I also know that when I go to see a show, I am thinking about which artists have worked on it. And so if it's not, if it's always the same artist at the top of that echelon, mm-hmm. then that's actually just the work of that artist that yeah. I'm interested in. So yeah. I'm not making a, I'm not going to say that timeshare will never become a, a mm-hmm. you know, a real company, but right now, certainly that's not the intention. It's just a, a, a a bank account and a forum by which I can produce work and other people can produce work under it as well. Always one of those interesting questions of what to do, especially when you're in that situation when you are like writing and producing your own work. Do you call it like uh, Rob Kempson Productions or do you call it like what do you do with that? I've gone back and forth on that myself. Well, we call it, we call it timeshare because um, it is a timeshare. So the, the intention of the company is that anyone uh, who's part of our collective can choose to produce under that mm-hmm. uh, title. Uh, they can choose to apply for grants under that mm-hmm. title. They can choose to, and, and other people have. So mm-hmm. right that's now, that's what it'll be. It'll be sort of a bank oh. card that gets passed around. Yeah. And we'll see. That's great. How long that lasts. <laughs> I don't know. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for, for talking with me. Today. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking interest in the show and taking the time to come all the way up here and hang out in my basement. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs>